Well, good morning. I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest, welcome. Um, if I didn't get a chance to say hi to you, please uh, stop me on the way out. Hopefully, you got a, a gift bag. If you, if this is your first time, it has contact information, and I'd love to reach out to you this week. Um, I want to start by uh, thinking about the tireless efforts that parents go through <laughs> in the Christmas season. <laughs> um, I want, but I want us to think about the, um, like, when did you stay up late and assemble something that maybe you regretted purchasing? <laughs> I, I know Moses and I at one point uh, did that with a, a, a trampoline. We bought our kids a trampoline, and we wanted them to, you know, wake up to it. And so we stayed up and put this thing together, and it was dark and cold and flashlights and springs and pinching and it was horrible it was it was absolutely miserable um but that's not what my kids remember of it right like they don't remember that they just woke up to a trampoline right it's amazing how we as humans operate that way in our lives, right? Like, we, the, the cost and the, not just the financial cost, right? But like the pinched fingers and all of that, right? The labor, right? What, whatever that looked like for you guys, right? The, the cost is, um, it, it's only accounted for in the joy that it brings, Right? And we, and we see this in, in throughout our lives. We see this, we actually have holidays specifically to remember the cost, right? Memorial Day and Veterans Day and Fourth of July and, and right, these different things. And, and every country has these, right? Um, and they're these celebrations. Why? Why? Because we want to remember that, that the, the, the gift that we have now for whatever the, whatever the country is or wherever you're at, it's, it's off of the backs and the labor and the pain and the cost of not us, generally. And yet, it's so easy for us to forget about it, right? So easy that the government has to give you a day off of work and close the banks to say, hey, don't forget, somebody did something for you. And so this is what we're doing, right? This is, this is what we do every Sunday. This is hopefully what we do every morning, is we dwell on the cost. Not in a, not in a shameful, uh, you know, downing sense, but in a rejoicing, celebratory, oh, what a glorious day. Was that his birthday? Was that when Jesus was born? Was that when he died? Was that when he rose? What day? Who who thought of Jesus like of Christmas, Jesus' birth as that glorious day? Seriously, like while you were singing. Okay, really, none of you. Jeez, I'm serious. Like I want to take a poll. I'm curious. Who thought of his death on the cross? Okay, and who thought of his resurrection? Who didn't think about it at all? <laughs> no, just joking. <laughs> so. Here's the beautiful part. It's all glorious, right? And in fact, this morning, what we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about the glory of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. A whole nother day, right? 
well, kind of depends on how you, how you cut the days. But it's glorious. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Why? Because that's what brought us the peace and joy that we talked about last Sunday. And so we're going to spend our time in the Garden of Gethsemane this morning. And it's tough. Right, And, it, and it, the, important, the important point of this is not that we sit here and we beat ourselves up for how much Jesus had to pay and how bad we are. And you're, a, you're, a, you're on the naughty list and, and you still got presents. You know what I mean? Like That's not the point. The point is that we see our sin for what it truly, really is. And the measures to which God not just created us, but redeemed us and reconciled us to himself. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me start by praying. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your son. We thank you for creating us and at the same time a plan to redeem us, to save us. Father, as we read through your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to see you for who you are, your love for us, and the lengths that you went and have gone and will continue to go to bring us into your presence. We thank you, Father. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we're going to be reading from the ESV. We'll be in John uh, chapter 18. Um, but as we've been doing, right, we're going back and forth. You guys all read probably one of my favorite uh, chapters in the Bible, John 17 this week in your small groups, right? And, and that was the high priestly prayer is what it's often referred to as. It's where Jesus specifically prays for you and me. Like in his mind, he, he tells the disciples, I'm not just praying for you guys. I'm praying for those who are going to believe through you, through your efforts, and that continues to this day and continues to people who will believe through your efforts and our efforts, right? And, and so it's a beautiful prayer. And so we got we to put ourselves into the context of this, and I want, us, I want us to draw back to last Sunday, okay? And you remember we talked about that, that um, Jesus brought us peace and joy. It was a gift, right? That, that he reconciled us to the Father, that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of the hatred of the world, in the midst of sorrow and just bad things that happen in this world that Jesus promises us and we can have peace and joy in him. Not circumstantial peace and joy, not peace and joy when things are going well, but peace and joy independent of our circumstances. That's, a, that's an impressive gift. And what did we say? That that came through the Holy Spirit. Because, what does he say at the very end of uh, what we brought on uh, last Sunday? At the very end, he goes, but you're all going to bounce. You're all going to leave me. Every single one of you is going to abandon me. You're going to scatter to your own homes. You're going to leave me alone. And so what we're going to see in John 17 is right off of the heels of telling the disciples that they're going to abandon him. Look, listen to what he says in John 17. And you guys read this this week, verse 11. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, speaking of us, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. See, and that was the conclusion at the end of last week, right? That God preserves us. God holds us, right? Like, your faithfulness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit ties you, unites you to Christ. And so you are forever united to Christ. It's not based upon how hard you work, how, how many times you preach the gospel during the week, or how much sin you avoid, or habits you break, or anything like that. It's not based on that. It's based on us being united to Christ, being reconciled to him. That's why we call it the good news, the gospel, right? All right, so this is where Jesus leaves them, and he's, he's explaining to them that this is the promise, this peace and joy, and that the Father, you have the power of the creator of the universe on your side. It's not bad. It's pretty good, right? If you got somebody vying for you, that's not a bad way. Uh, so now the disciples, and, and I will say that, you know, this is, this is the beauty of us going back and forth between small groups and here, right, is because uh, as we... As you guys are all reading in John chapter 17, and then we bounce back to John chapter 18, um, I, I, I got a great correction from Doug this morning. He was like, actually, that's not where they were at, right? <laughs> like, and so we, we go back, and it's like, oh, yeah, actually, you're right. So I think last week I preached that uh, they were still in the upper room. But in John chapter 14, it's, he says, rise, let us go. And so John chapter, at the end of John 14, so really 15, 16, 17, and now 18, they're in between the upper room, right? They just finished dinner, and they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? And so walking and talking, you know, somebody's writing. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how it worked, right? And, uh, and so this is where they're at. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us to that path from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, what I, and so we're going to read uh, chapter 18, verse 1 first. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the, bo- the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. These are very specific details, right? And so I just want to put us in the context, so I'm going to throw up some images here. I have no idea how this is going to play out, because you guys might not even be able to see what's going on. I think one of them is just a Google Maps uh, image. Um, all right, so the big yellow circle on the left, that's a Temple Mount right? So like um, that is um, historically where the temple was. And there's a, there's a, you can kind of see a wall right down the middle of the screen, right? Like that's the, the Eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. Okay. Um, And then you see a road right to the right of that. That's just a road. That's kind of a perimeter road. That's about a 200 foot difference. So it's funny when you look at like a map, Jerusalem it's not like it's like on top of a mountain, and yet whenever they talk about Jerusalem, they go, they go up to Jerusalem. Um, you know, we in cars see, well, Florida, unique, but we in cars, like a 200-foot hill isn't like an up thing. It's just kind of a thing, right? But if you were walking to Jerusalem here, you'd look at it and be like, I got to go up there, right? It's, a, it's an up for sure. Um, and so all of that kind of dotted area, um, where it's like kind of it's kind of desert. That's kind of the valley. That's the that's the Kidron Valley. So that's the there's like a brook that would run through there. You know, during torrential floods, like that would that would actually have some water. Otherwise, it's for the most part dry. And then to the right of that, you start getting into um, the Mount of Olives. Okay, so that's all the mountain olives that goes off to the right side of the screen. Okay, so it's kind of fun because when you get to 
when you're, when you're there, you can kind of pick apart these different pieces. And can anybody guess what's in the bottom right of the screen? See all the white? You guys know what that is? Tombs. They're all tombs. And I'll explain why <laughs> here in a second. And so what you see in the kind of far northeast part is what they've now kind of gated off, and they just went, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's maybe three times the size of this room. Um, and it's olive trees. It's just, a, it's just a dirt garden with olive trees, and somebody said this was where Jesus was. You know, who, who knows, right? But, but this is the context. This is, this is where this is at. And so on the eastern side, can you go to the next slide? Um, so this is now looking from the valley up into Jerusalem, and you can kind of see right in the middle, that's a gate, it's not a very good gate now because it's, it's filled. <laughs> you can't go through it. It's the eastern gate, okay? Um, some have called it the golden gate. The walls have been built over the years, and, and I don't know how that works with soil, but whatever, right? There's another gate underneath it. Um, that was an open gate until the, uh, until the Muslims took it in, in the ninth century, and they filled it up. And then the Crusades opened it up for about 82 years or something like that in the 12th century. And they got closed up again, and it's been closed up ever since. Um, now, part of that is because that goes straight into the Temple Mount, and that's Muslim-occupied territory. Um, so you don't, you, none of us can go there. Um, it's, not a, it's not a safe place. Uh, you can go in the rest of the area of Jerusalem, but not, not so much there. Um, all right, go to the next slide. So this is the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what it looks like. So it's just it's, it's not, no, nothing spectacular. Just olive. And I guess Gethsemane actually means oil press. So it's like olive trees, and, and so that's where they would do this stuff. All right. Um, can you go back two slides, though? I want to uh, to the very first one. So thanks. Um, so here's the amazing part of this, right? You know why the Muslims <laughs> closed it up? Because the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to come through the eastern entrance. Um, it's cool because they were just 900 years late. Because <laughs> he did, right? That's the, that's the beautiful part about this. When, when, if you go back and you read in Matthew, as Jesus enters in on Palm Sunday, he comes from where? The Mount of Olives. He's coming in through that entrance. And so, so he comes into this entrance, and now he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And so he came in on Palm Sunday, and we're, we're getting towards the, the end of this holy week, and now here he is leaving through presumably the same gate unless he wanted to walk all the way around, which probably wouldn't have. <laughs> you know, so now he goes out the eastern gate um, to go uh, to the garden. And so all those people in the south in the bottom right corner are waiting for the Messiah. That's why they get buried there, right? Because they're, they're longing for the day that the Messiah is going to return and they want to be watching the gate when he gets back. Isn't that amazing? And so they're longing for this, just as, like we talked about last Sunday, right? We, we have to be, we now are in the place where the Messiah's come and he's going to come back again, but that same longing, that same advent, that same hope for Jesus' return is what fueled that. I skipped a bunch of verses there, Tim, so I'm just going to skip down to verse two now. Um, it says, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place that they were going, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
And so this was a place that they had been to frequently. It was a place that uh, Jesus and his disciples had gone. In fact, so much so that, that Judas knew that this is where they were going to go that night. Now, maybe Jesus had said to them in the upper room, like, hey, after dinner, we're going to go down to the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe he had already said that. But this was, again, part of a very intimate picture of what's going on. And what we're going to read next is, is John is going to start to explain to us the words of Jesus and how he makes this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And he had this a little bit, right? We, we, we read this in, in chapter 16, um, where he, he makes this contrast between who Jesus, Judas is and what he's going to do as he's operating in the flesh and what Jesus is doing as he's thinking about the will of the Father. And so there's this contrast. And so we read this in verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Scholars debate this, like who had the lead in this band that was going to arrest Jesus? Was it, was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? It kind of doesn't matter. They, they, none of them liked them, right? Like, it's a mixed band. It's a mixed group. And, they, and they're coming with weapons. They're coming with lanterns. They're, they're coming to get him. And, and there, again, there's debates as to how many people they were, that were here. But notice what it says specifically about Jesus. Knowing all that would happen to him. John does this on purpose. Why? Because he's showing the glory of Christ. He's showing that, that this isn't, oh no, what am I going to do now? How do I react to this? How do I solve it? Isn't that how we live our lives? Tomorrow, we find out some piece of information, something happens, something changes, and we go, oh no, what do I do now? <laughs> and we try to make the best decision that we can. And we pray and we go to God. And this is the model that Jesus is going to display for us. This is about it. John just kind of skirts past the suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. He really doesn't mention it much, other than acknowledges that Jesus knows all that would happen to him. So we're going to rewind, and we're going to go back and read what all Jesus was aware of. So if you go to Matthew chapter 26... I think I can do this as we're going verse by verse through uh, John. I can go back to Matthew, right, and read some amplifying information here. So here's, here's what you get in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. I want you to think the difference between the flesh and the spirit as I read through this. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so, could you not watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. If there's a section of Scripture that so identifies the human condition and the weakness and frailty of our ability to do what we want to do, it's this. In fact, I would argue it's sleep in general. Their eyes were heavy. They had just feasted. They just got done with dinner. Right? Don't we all on Thanksgiving Day, after we eat, we're like, lights out. Right? And that's what we want to do. We got family there and friends. Right? Got to be sociable. But this is, this isn't an accusation. And I, I want this to be real. This isn't, in fact, the second time Jesus comes back, I think he just lets them sleep. Did you read that? The first time he comes back, he, he like wakes them up. He's like, seriously, wake up. Why aren't you guys staying awake? And then he goes back, he prays, he comes back, and it says he finds them still sleeping. So he then turns around and goes back. It's almost like he goes, I've made my point. They're going to, they're, they're sleeping. It's, it's not, it's not a, a condemning thing towards them. It's a, we are so weak. Here is the, the climax, the glorious day, the, the, right? Like, and, and here's the amazing thing. Even us, knowing what was happening that night, I think we would have fallen asleep too. Could you imagine? Right now, you, with all that you know about what that night would have been, if you could like transport yourself back there, have the meal, be there, and then you're in the garden. It's a full moon. It's peaceful. It's nice out. Jesus leaves. He's gone for an hour praying. <laughs> I'll tell you, I am out. Like I have no ability to stay awake as it is. It, it's almost insulting to this, the significance of the circumstances, isn't it? But that's kind of how we live again. We, we somehow have this weird tension in our lives where we don't appreciate the cost. We don't, we don't appreciate, and they didn't appreciate what was happening even though Jesus had explained to them what was going to be happening. They didn't appreciate the significance. They didn't appreciate that the Son of God said, wait here, I'm going to go pray, watch with me. Okay, all right, Jesus. And then they fall asleep again, right? It's, it's, it's showing the comparison between how weak our flesh is and how strong the Holy Spirit is. That's the contrast. That's what he's trying to show as we walk through this. Look at, back at what he says in verse 41. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What temptation? What are you going to do? Pick olives? What's going to happen? 
You see, Jesus is pulling them out of this context. It's not just about this. It's not just about sleeping. It's not just about any of this. He's going, be about my father's business. Be spirit-led. Seek the will of God in your life. Pursue the things that God is pursuing. Because when you pursue and feed the flesh, temptation enters. When we don't do the hard things, when we don't do the things that we ought to be doing, when we aren't pursuing the will of God in our lives, and we're pursuing our own kingdom, our own glory, our own presence, right? And we're just doing all these things for ourselves. Jesus says very clearly that temptation will be knocking at your door. It's a, it's a, it's a warning. It's a, it's a guarding for us. He goes, this isn't about sleep. This is about being intentional. This is about living your life for God's glory. And we're going to read this a little bit later on, but Caiaphas, the high priest, and Judas, right? They, they are operating in a very human way. And they're doing what they think is right or what they think is the most advantageous. And what do they do? They succumb to temptation. So Jesus models for us, what do we do in these circumstances? How do we live? How do we get this peace and joy in our lives? What, what's the connection? So here's, here's this disastrous thing that's about to happen. Jesus knows everything that's about to transpire. He knows all the suffering. He knows the pain. He knows what's going to happen. And he pursues peace. Where does he get peace? He prays. He gets peace through prayer. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If we could just pray that and mean that, <laughs> that's where we find peace. Knowing that our God is sovereign. Knowing, I mean, just think, how, how much of our lives are we, do we spend fighting our circumstances? Trying to fix the situation trying to correct it, trying to put it back on the path that we, that we want it to be on. And how often are we doing that without seeking God's will? You see, that, that's the point. Jesus took on human flesh, right? And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because I will fail miserably at trying to define, and I don't even think we, the language, I don't think any language exists that can fully comprehend the Trinity, but Jesus took on human flesh. He took on human weakness, not sin, but the frailty and weakness of humanity. And so what does he see in here? He, he's going, I don't want this. My flesh doesn't want this. My flesh doesn't want the pain. I'm sorrowful. I'm troubled. I'm agonizing over this. But Jesus is the son of God. And so he then says, not my will your will but we can do the same we just have a little bit of sin mixed up in all of that right and so this is our objective this is 
what we ought to be pursuing. And so in Jesus' case, the cost was significant. The cost that was coming before him, the cost to obtain peace for us was expensive. It was extremely expensive. Go back to John Uh, chapter 18, in, in verse 4, it, the slide's not up there, but he says, knowing all that would happen to him. This was the cost of yours and my redemption. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and he knew that he had to walk this path, God's will the plan from all eternity past, why he incarnated, why he came to earth, why all of this was happening. He knew this was the path that he had to walk. But that didn't make it easier. Why do you think Jesus was sorrowful? Do you think, he, do you think it was just physical pain? Do you think... Do you think he... Do you think he was sad for us? Do you think he was sad that this is the depth of where humanity has gone? What rebellion against God. I mean, looking at his disciples' faces. I mean, I, certainly he had seen them sin. We know, I mean, various ones of them, right? He, had, he knew that Judas had betrayed him. Peter was going to deny him. All of them were going to abandon him. James and John had had total power obsessions, right? Like, like he saw sin walking with him, and yet he, he welcomed them in his presence, right? And, and so it's not like he's afraid of it, but he sees it, and it's got to just break his heart. Just knowing that, like, reconciliation with God solves it. That's it. And here we are, they, they are, and he's looking at them, and he's sad for them. When you encounter sin... In your own life, it makes us sad, doesn't it? It makes us sorrowful when we've said something that's offended somebody, if we've hurt somebody, or if we've done something even, even that nobody else knows and we're like, we shouldn't have done that. I want you to think about what that sorrow feels like. You're like, man, I wish I was better. I wish I, wish I hadn't done that. I, why did, I thought I was better than that. Right? Don't we feel these things? Right? I'm not the only one. Right? Okay. All right. We're good. We're good, right? In that moment, Jesus took all of that sorrow, all of it, and felt it all. We couldn't handle that. He could, because he's the Son of God. That's the sorrow that he's feeling. The sorrow of like, man, what, I, what, I, what, they, what they all wish they could have, but they can't have, it's so close, it's, it's right there, it's at our fingertips. We know what we should do, but we can't do it, right? Like what the Apostle Paul says, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. He knows this, and he's in anguish over us, for us. This is why we read in Hebrews chapter 4 that he is our great high priest, Listen to what it says in uh, Hebrews 4, 15. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That sorrow, he knows it, and he took it all. That's why he says, even to death, like, like I, I, we can't even comprehend what that would be like to take all of the times in your life that you felt sorrow, imagine having never felt it, and then all at once. We would, we, I don't even think our hearts and our brains could handle it. We would literally, probably physiologically just crumple, right? And this is where Jesus is at. Never experienced sin, never experienced a separation from God, one with the Father, perfect, everything was great. And in this moment, he felt what you feel. He felt what it feels like to not be good enough. That's why he's sorrowful. That's why he's angry. But that feeling, that sorrow, that carries him to the cross. And then there's physical pain on top of that. And we'll talk later about the, the separation between him and God and where he feels like he's forsaken, right? We know he's not, but it's, but it's in that moment. Those are the feelings. That's the sorrow that has led up to the cross. That's the cost for our peace, for our reconciliation with God. That's what it took. This isn't some ethereal thing. Like we're not talking about just random belief in some guy that lived 2,000 years ago. That's not what this is about. This is about a legitimate, genuine sacrifice on your behalf to give you peace and joy in the midst of your circumstances. That's the whole point of all of this. And so this is what's beautiful about this because what Jesus knows in the midst of this, what his peace comes from what? His relationship with the Father. He knows the Father. You know the Father. Right? The Father's revealed himself to you. God doesn't hide from you. He wants you to know him. You can. Read. Read. Get into his word. Read the letters he's written to you. Hear how he's described. Go read through the Psalms and go hear about like just how glorious he is and how he thinks and how he operates and be humbled. But also be affirmed that this is the same God that's, that's for you and that's, that's pursuing this peace and joy on your behalf. And then look, so, so here's the beautiful part. Jesus knows that God is sovereign, right? He knows what the plan is, knowing all things that were going to happen. So here comes the band of soldiers. And what does he ask? Who, who are you looking for? <laughs> which, which I think is awesome, right? Jesus knows who he's looking for, who they're looking for. But he's setting them up. Read verse 5. Now, this is back in John 18, verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When, yeah. 
that where it says, I am he, he isn't actually there. It's, it's, in, some, in some manuscripts it is, but the vast majority of them say, ego, I me, I am. It's the same I am statements that John has very clearly articulated throughout the gospel. I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am living water. I am the true vine. So when he, he's identifying without going back to all of that, right? That's, that's the name of Yahweh from Exodus that, that God the Father tells Moses, hey, when, when people ask who I am, tell them, I am sent you. I am. Same words. This isn't just Jesus saying, I am. How do we know this? Have you ever spoken to somebody and they fell down? <laughs> Probably not. They fall backwards. This, wasn't, this isn't them falling forwards in praise and adoration of the king of the Jews, the Messiah. That's not that, right? They're falling backwards. This is the glory of God in their presence. You got to imagine they're all shuffling to their feet in verse 7. So we asked them again, whom do you seek? <laughs> kind of bold that they answered again, right? <laughs> I'd be like, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> I think it's dinner time. They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Remember, Jesus has said this over and over. I'm not, I'm not going to lose any of you, right? Except for the son of destruction, except for Judas. Like that was part of the plan. If you're safe, you're secure. Why? Because of them? No, because of his power. Even though they're going to abandon him, he, they're, they're, they're still, they're not going to be lost. And now in a very real sense, Jesus is like, arrest me, don't arrest them. Let me go. Look what it says in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, the old fisherman, having a sword, if you're like, a sword? <laughs> when did he grab a sword? Right? Like, you're just eating dinner. Jesus is like, hey, let's go down to the garden. And, and Peter goes, hang on, let me grab my sword. Like, we don't read that in Scripture. I don't, I don't know, but Peter has one. Probably because, right, Jesus has started to say, hey, the world's going to hate you, right? Like, there's this, there's this ominous buildup of, like, things are about to happen, right? And so <laughs> Peter draws it and says he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. I don't know if anybody knows anybody named Malchus, but that would quite be quite the biblical name, right? Like this guy just gets a, a, a cameo in the Bible for getting his ear cut off. And, and it's also in the other Gospels as well. Like, like it's, it's legitimately, it's his right ear. And, and um, I think it's in Matthew where, he, where Jesus heals it. But very particular, very specific. What does this tell us? This tells us that this is intended to be what? 
a historical account, right? Like this isn't just a fairy tale thing. Like there, there's, a, there's a guy who's walking around. You might, he might have a scar. I don't know what happens after Jesus heals an ear healing, if there's still scars or what. But you could go up to him and he'd be like, yeah, actually, Peter cut my ear off. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is us. We are all Peter here. In every circumstance of our lives, we fight it. We fight against the life that we think we're supposed to have. We go, it's very easy. This is how we're going to go. And then, and then rocks and boulders and things get in the way, and we start going, right? And, and Jesus goes, peace. God's sovereign. This doesn't mean that we don't do anything, right? And I need to make sure that this is clear. You know, Jesus isn't saying like, hey, just go skipping along and, you know, just cross the street and no cars will hit you because, you know, if they do, well, then they're supposed to. And if they don't, then you were supposed to live. Like, that's not biblical, you know, sovereignty of God theology, okay? And, and people have very much so taken it down that path. Um, that's not it. We've, we've still got a brain, Okay. So he's still expecting us to make wise decisions. And what do we do? We go to God. We go to God to seek his wisdom and peace and understanding and discernment, right? You read all through Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and you you read of God going, no, pursue wisdom. Think, try to think how God would feel about this circumstance. But Peter isn't thinking about that. He's like, oh no, conflict, let me stop it. (laughs) The band of soldiers, I'm going to take them out with my one little dagger sword or whatever his plan was. Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You can, you can Google Annas and Caiaphas, but there's, there's some political stuff going on in there. But I'll, very quickly, we can jump back to John chapter 11, where it gives more details about Caiaphas here. John chapter 11, verse 50. You guys remember reading this. It said that, um, um, this is Caiaphas speaking, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So how are, so this is what Caiaphas had, God had inspired him to prophesy. All those words, and we would go, yes, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. And then verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That's, that's the human, right? That's the flesh that's going, oh, I can solve this problem. One, one person is supposed to die for the nation and bring us all together. And so what do they think of? They're, they're operating inside of the flesh. They're operating inside of the world. They're going, okay, well, this is going to help us from, a, from a, a Jews and the Romans. And let's put Jesus to death. And then, and then we'll be good. And then we'll have a government. And it'll be great. And we'll be free. And it'll be awesome. And so the Jews are like, this is a good thing. But what they didn't understand was that the death was for them spiritually, for a reconciliation to God. And so this is the Caiaphas that Jesus gets taken to. So what's the cost? What's the cost of our peace and joy? This is is Jesus walking this path, this path of God's sovereignty, 
this path that's sorrowful. And he says, let me, let me walk this. Not, not, not what my human flesh weakness wants to say and do, but what God's will is for my life. Because this is what's required for peace and joy. So what's required of us for peace and joy? Jesus went to those lengths to pursue peace and joy. What lengths do we go to? Let me pray.